Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, why do you have on hand? What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, behold, it is there wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Akish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Akish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Akish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought his, this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, it is great to worship with you together this afternoon. So welcome to our worship service today. Uh, if you're just joining us, or if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series on the book of 1 Samuel, and we're calling it After God's Own Heart. Because we want to be people who pursue God's heart. What that means is we want to be people who love what God loves, who hate what God hates. We want to know God's heart for us, and we want to respond by giving our hearts to Him. And this is easy to do when things are going well, but not so much when things are going south. You know, as a pastor uh, here at this church, I have the privilege of officiating countless weddings. And all of these weddings are beautiful weddings, rightfully so, because these weddings are celebrating the most important occasion in the couple's life together. But for so many of the couples uh, that I counsel before and after the wedding, that first year of marriage after the wedding is really, really difficult. 
And especially for couples who haven't dated as long, they begin to, as they begin to experience conflict, sin, baggage that they're bringing into the marriage, and challenging life circumstances, they learn pretty quickly that love doesn't come naturally to them. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's often this way when it comes to our Christian lives. It's one thing to have faith and trust in God when things go well, not so much when things get real. So today, we're going to look at how we can continue to be after God's own heart, even when everything seems to be spinning out of control or falling apart. And we've been following the story of David. And it is truly the ultimate underdog story. Let's take a moment to remember it before we dive into our passage. David is a nobody. He's a common shepherd boy from a sleepy little town called Bethlehem. And the great prophet Samuel comes to David's father Jesse one day because he was sent by God to anoint a new king because the current king Saul is not doing a great job and not obeying the Lord. And what follows is a very formal affair. A religious sacrifice takes place. Jesse and his sons are consecrated by Samuel. David is not even invited. His seven older brothers, they pass before Samuel one at a time, but none of them are to be king. And after the last one passes by, Samuel asks Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse finally remembers that he has one more. Oops, totally forgot to invite him. He's out with the sheep. So David is called and he is anointed the future king of Israel. And then David then enters into Saul's service to be his personal armor bearer. And Saul loves David. And only David is able to calm the king with his music when a harmful spirit afflicts him. And then the famous story, the great enemy, Goliath, arises. He challenges the Israelites to single combat, nobody stands. The entire military, hardened, trained soldiers, they're terrified, including the king. And David, who was no soldier, he just happened to be there. He rises up and meets Goliath's challenge. Without an ounce of fear, he stands up to the giant practically unarmed, He completely trusts in God. He courageously defeats and kills Goliath, winning a great victory for Israel. David, the shepherd boy, defeating the mightiest of warriors while King Saul watches from the sidelines in fear. Saul, he was taller and better looking than everyone else, but he clearly does not have what it takes to be king. But David, he's got the goods. And his life is forever changed. David becomes a military commander. He wins numerous victories, 
Saul offers his daughter to David in marriage. He says, you know what? Take my daughter, just give me 100 Philistine lives as payment. David provides 200. He marries the king's daughter. He is set for life. And last week we saw that David and Saul's son Jonathan, they become like brothers, closer than friends. Their souls are knit together. Have we ever seen such a quick rise to the top? Other than St. Peter's in the tournament right now. In such a short time, David goes from tending sheep to being the biggest star of the kingdom. The future king, military commander, wife of Saul's daughter, best friend of the king's heir. But just as quickly... Everything falls apart. In our passage today, I want to point to David's fall from grace, David's forgetting grace, and finally, God's unrelenting grace. First, David's fall from grace. How do things unravel so quickly? Well, as we saw last week, David's meteoric rise to the top, it aroused intense jealousy from Saul. Saul goes from loving David to wanting to kill him. He tries multiple times to kill David by throwing spears at him, but each time David is able to escape. Saul sends people to David's home to kill him in the middle of the night, but his wife warns him and David is able to escape. Then David seeks refuge with the great prophet Samuel. Maybe there he'll be safe. But Saul follows him there. And finally, Jonathan tries to protect David. Maybe the king's son will be able to protect him, but he realizes that his father's rage is too far gone. David has to run away. So in chapter 20, Jonathan warns David and tells him to escape. And this is what their goodbye looks like. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 20, how the chapter ends. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. As our chapter begins, David has lost everything. His family is not safe. He's had to leave his wife, his home, his position of command, even his best friend. And he must have been thinking, God, I thought I was your guy. What's going on? Where are you? I've lost everything. A month ago, as the Ukrainian crisis began, one video in particular, it broke my heart, and it really humanized the conflict for me in such a visceral way. Many of you saw this clip as it went viral online, a video of a father saying goodbye to his little girl as he went to fight against the invading Russians. The desperate tears of a man 
who has to give up everything because of an unhinged tyrant. David, at the end of chapter 20, he really reminds me of that video. He weeps bitterly here because he has to give up everything he loves. Will I ever see my family again? Will they be safe? Am I going to die? He doesn't know how, if he will survive. This is how our passage begins. You might be thinking, yeah, but this is David. Surely David will trust in God no matter what. Surely this David who stood up to Goliath will remain steadfast despite his circumstances. But what happens? Look at how our passage begins. Then David came to to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Okay, so Israel in the Old Testament, it was led by three institutions, prophet, priest, and king. David here, he's running away from a king. He tried to find safety in a prophet, Samuel. That doesn't work. So David goes to the one institution left where he might find refuge, a priest. He comes to Nob, where the tabernacle was being kept. But the priest greets him, and something is off. Ahimelech, the priest, is trembling with fear. No doubt he's heard of what's been going on. He's afraid of the danger that helping David will bring to him and the other priests. So he's trembling in fear. And by now, alarm bells are ringing for David. Ahimelech asked David, why are you alone? David's response here, it's very revealing. Rather than telling the truth, David lies to the priest. David's faith and composure are badly shaken, so much so that he's willing to lie to the priest at the tabernacle of God. David, he stood with confidence before a towering giant, but he wilts here before a trembling old man. He tells the priest he was sent by Saul on a very special secret mission. That was very important. And then David shows the real reason why he's there. Verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? Uh, Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. You would think that David, being a man of faith, he would go to the priests in order to seek God, to seek God's will, to find refuge in God. Instead, David lies to the priest and asks the priest to give him whatever provisions he had on hand. David is not there for God. 
He's there for supplies. He's lost faith in God. He's not seeking God's help. Rather, he's looking to help himself. And I wonder if any of us can relate. When things go sideways, we go into self-preservation mode, don't we? Rather than seeking God's will, God's comfort, we try to figure things out on our own, even if it means compromising our faith. We may go to God on the surface like David, to the priest, to the tabernacle. We may go to church, or we may go to God in prayer, but it's often so that God helps us with our problems rather than us submitting to God's purpose and will. Can I ask you this question? When there's some sort of crisis or emergency or threat in your life, is prayer your first instinct or your last resort? That really reveals how dependent you are on God. David here, unlike when he stood up to Goliath, is not dependent on God at all. This is reiterated in David's next request to Ahimelech. Verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, uh, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. You happen to have a sword or a spear? You know, I was in such a hurry that I, I, I couldn't bring mine. And the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it's here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you take that, if, if you will take that, take it, for there's none but that here. And David said, oh, there's, there's none like that. Give it to me. Remember right before David faced Goliath, Saul tried to give uh, David his own armor and sword, and David said, I'm good. I got a couple pebbles. Don't need that. And then when Goliath mocks him, David responds with this iconic speech. 1 Samuel 17, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that God, that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saved not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Man, that's a speech. When David faced Goliath, his full confidence was with God. He rejected sword. He rejected spear. Because God did not need to save with sword and spear. It's so telling then that David asks Ahimelech specifically for a sword or a spear. And it just so happened that Goliath's sword was there. 
And David takes it eagerly. Ooh, there's no sword like that one. Give it to me. I'll take that. The moment he saw the sword, it should have been a clear reminder for David of what God can do. But we see that David has completely lost sight of God. He's placing his hope entirely on worldly resources and means. So let's recap. David, in his time of greatest need, does not seek God's help. He lies to the priest. Rather than worshiping God, he takes that holy bread, which was only to be used for holy purposes, and he uses it for an ordinary meal. He arms himself with weapons of war, trusting in a sword rather than in God's power and salvation. And where does all of this lead him? Well, first, and this is really tragic, David's sins have serious consequences. His decisions really hurt others. David puts Ahimelech and the other priests in harm. You know, when David is with Ahimelech, there just so happens to be there one of Saul's men, his chief herdsman. He witnesses the entire episode, and then he reports it all back to Saul. And in the next chapter, Saul has all of the priests of Nob slaughtered. David's priority in this moment is his own needs. He disregards the safety of others completely, which leads to their death because of their association with him. And you know what makes it worse? Is that in the next chapter, David confesses that he knew that that, that was Saul's guy and that he would tell Saul. But he was so preoccupied with his own self-preservation that he did nothing. He didn't care about the priests. He didn't care about their safety. He didn't care about what his actions would do to others. He just can't be bothered to even speak up. But not only do others suffer, David ends up fleeing to Gath. Gath was a Philistine city, but not just any city. Gath, get this, was the hometown of Goliath. The hometown of Goliath, and I don't know what he's thinking here, but he comes to Gath with Goliath's sword. <laughs> David, maybe if you're going to Goliath's hometown, don't wear the sword that you used to cut off the giant's head. But he's, he's not thinking clearly. And to no one's surprise, David is recognized. He's brought before the king of Gath, and David becomes very afraid. And again, rather than trust in God, rather than stand up to the enemy, David resorts to his own devices. Verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. David pretends to be insane. 
he acts like a deranged person. And this is an act of total desperation. It's a Hail Mary. It, he's just hoping that they would take pity on him, that they wouldn't kill someone with a mental illness. This David is the exact opposite of the David we saw against Goliath. That David was calm. He was collected. He was confident. He was faithful. He was courageous. This David is cowardly, deceptive, desperate, and faithless. He's flailing his body. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. He's drooling. David is very lost here. He's at his lowest. It's strange. I learned uh, so much about David and Goliath growing up. My Sunday school teacher has never told me this story. He's at his lowest. He's lost everything. Everyone he loves. He's abandoned his faith completely. He had so much king potential. He was so unlike Saul. But the best of men are men at best. And David here before the king of Gath, he's barely a man. Fear has crippled him. He's turned away from God. In fact, he so strongly resembles Saul here. A man who has completely lost his mind. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It's a pathetic sight. This man after God's own heart, barely a man, and he has abandoned God. But you know what? I am deeply thankful for this picture of David. Because it reminds me that the heroes of the Bible are not exemplars of faith or paragons of virtue. They're flawed people. Rescued, changed, and used by God. Who among us does not have moments in their lives where sin and fear have led them to do and become things that they deeply regret and are ashamed of today? All of us have failed to trust in God. We've turned to our own devices and sins. Has your faith ever crumbled in difficult times? Have you lied Manipulated others to protect and save yourself? Have people in your life been hurt by your sins and failures? Well, if so, there's good news for you. You know, one thing I love about this passage is that there are two Psalms that David writes reflecting on these very events. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 and we can see exactly what David was thinking, what he's learned from these events. And I don't have time to go through them all right now, but I really encourage you, when you go home tonight, take a read. Two Psalms, Psalm 34, Psalm 56. Read them at home because now you know the context in which David wrote them. I just want to point out two things. Number one, God sees you and God knows you even at your lowest. Psalm 56, 8, David writes, 
you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Friends, God sees every struggle, and he remembers them. Every tear that falls from your eyes is collected and cataloged by him. He sees you in your lowest and at your worst. And he doesn't turn a blind eye to you. He knows your pain. He identifies with your struggle. Your suffering is not lost on him. Even when you deny him or fall away from him. Second thing, God is near and God saves. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When David was at his lowest and worst, God was nearest to him. It's interesting. God was not nearest to David when he stood against Goliath. When was God nearest to David? When David couldn't fight for himself. You know what's a greater enemy than, than a towering giant? David's sin and unbelief. And God does not abandon him. God doesn't rescue the people who can help themselves. He doesn't rescue mostly good people who mess up now and then and just need a little help and encouragement. God rescues the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. Remember David taking the holy bread from the priest? David's at the tabernacle of God and all he wants is to fill his stomach. Well, in John 6, there's that famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the crowds, after that event, they're following him. They're not, they're not letting Jesus out of their sight. And Jesus turns to them and he says, you know what? The only reason why you're following me is because you ate your fill of bread. They're doing exactly what David did. But then Jesus tells them this. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the true bread that David needed. That's what David was looking for. And David was not cast out because he belonged to God. And that is true for you if you believe in the Son. Jesus will never cast you out, no matter how epically you fail. Jesus will never lose you, but he will rescue you from your sin and unbelief. He is the bread that will truly satisfy you, even in your lowest and worst 
and most shameful moments. In Jesus, we have a Savior who died to raise us up. You know, David's prophet, priest, and king couldn't save him. But we have in Jesus the ultimate, the true prophet, priest, and king who we can trust. Spoiler alert, we know that David messes up in even bigger ways once he's king. But even then, God does not give up on him. So I want to close with these words from David that he wrote right after he pretended to be crazy before the Philistine king. Right after this, when he finally remembers who God is, he writes these words, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Are you struggling and hurting today? Are you trying to save yourself? Are you ignoring God and turning to your own devices? Are you hurting the ones around you? Repent of your sin. Believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. May we all taste and see the goodness of God and take our refuge in him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Every single one of us here needs to be reminded of your goodness. Help us all to taste it, to see it, to know it, to remember it, especially when things get hard. Help us to take our refuge in you and in you alone. Thank you that you fight for us when we are at our bravest and when we are at our worst. Thank you that you will never, ever lose us or cast us out. We thank you for your unrelenting grace 